So if we're talking about women who are premenopausal, have a natural menstrual cycle, so in their late teens to mid-30s, if you start seeing changes in the bleed pattern, you start seeing changes in menstrual cycle length and start skipping menstrual cycle more and more, this is more of a sign that you're anovulatory and you're not producing enough progesterone and you also have low levels of estrogen. We see this so often in recreational all the way through elite athletes because they are not optimizing their fueling. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and today's guest is Dr. Stacy Sims. Stacy is a forward-thinking international exercise physiologist and nutrition scientist who aims to revolutionize exercise nutrition and performance for women. She has directed research programs at Stanford and others, focusing on female athlete health and performance and pushing the dogma to improve research on all women. With the unique opportunities Silicon Valley has to offer, During her tenure at Stanford, she had the opportunity to translate earlier research into consumer products in a science-based layperson's book called Roar, written to explain sex differences in training and nutrition across the lifespan. Dr. Sims has published over 70 peer-reviewed papers, several books, and is a regularly featured speaker at professional and academic conferences, including those by USOC and USA Cycling. Today on the show, we discuss why women are not small men, how to know if your hormones are causing health issues, the signs of early menopause, how to optimize your health and hormones in your 20s and 30s and during the peri and postmenopausal stages, how to customize your diet and exercise program based on your age and hormonal needs, why you may want to think twice about intermittent fasting and exercise classes, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Stacy Sims to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. And I think a great place for us to start that I think will set a great foundation for our conversation. As I've heard you say on podcasts, I've heard you say this in a TED talk that women are not small men. Um, Talk about why you said that and talk about the physiological differences between the two. So it started as a tagline to wake some of my first and second year students up at university so that they would, you know, after lunch lecture, wake up and be like, what do you mean by women are not small men? So there's a couple of layers to it. One, we look at almost all the biomedical research, including sports science research. The data is really from 22-year-olds college age men. So when we're trying to generalize that to women, it doesn't work because there are inherent sex differences, not only from birth, but also when we start looking at estrogen, testosterone. So we look at inherent sex differences, there are things like within the muscle itself, women have more of the proteins within the mitochondria to use free fatty acids. Women go through blood sugar first, and then they tap into free fatty acid use, and they don't deplete their muscle glycogen. So when we're talking about fueling, we have fueling differences there. We look at muscle fiber typing, we look at muscle fiber, like the firing rates, those are different between men and women. And then when we start to look at what happens at the onset of puberty with estrogen, progesterone versus testosterone, we see that girls, their hip to knee angle widens, their shoulder girdle widens, their biomechanics change. And then we start to see body composition changes. We see a a change in center of gravity where the center of gravity changes from more upper body to lower body. And when we're looking at all of these sex differences and epigenetic changes with the exposure to hormones, those aren't accounted for in almost every guideline we have with regards to training, nutrition, recovery, you name it. You mentioned hormones and specifically, you know, when we think of hormones, you and specifically with hormones, you talked about like estrogen and testosterone. Obviously, like as a guy, testosterone is always like the thing, you know, I want to look at to make sure that that's optimized. Um, and I, I've also heard you say that testosterone is also incredibly important for women. Talk about the roles that both estrogen and testosterone play in women and why um, they should pay attention to that. Yeah. So estrogen is really women's testosterone because estrogen in isolation is anabolic, just like men's, the way that testosterone works in men. But women have to have a baseline of testosterone in order to kind of help some of the muscle tissue and recovery accumulate. 
Um, so when we're looking at testosterone levels, which often get ignored in women, it has a baseline level to help with uh, attenuating fatigue, to help with recovery, to help with muscle development, but it doesn't have the same role in women as it does for men. Estrogen does. So we're looking at estrogen. Estrogen is really tightly tied to like satellite cell um, development of the muscle tissue. It's responsible for how strong myosin bonds to actin for muscle contraction. And it also is responsible for how much acetylcholine is um, available for a nerve impulse to pass over to the muscle for muscle contraction and the speed of that contraction. So when we're lo looking at estrogen, it's really important that women maintain a circulation of estrogen that is appropriate for menstrual cycle health, as well as all these other functions that it, that it entails. Diving more into estrogen, um, you hear a lot now when, let's just talk about women. You hear this from men, but we're talking about women now. So let's talk, let's stick with that, that when something is going on in their health, whether they can't lose weight, whether they're not sleeping, whether they're stressed, whatever it is, they'll say, it, it's my hormones. My hormones are off. And you'll see them potentially go and try to get something like hormone replacement therapy. You'll see them just go to a clinic and try to like see if they can get that optimized. And I see that happening now, um, just younger and younger, right? Talk about the signs of somebody who truly has like low levels of estrogen. And then like, how can they healthily um, like learn to optimize those without necessarily um, getting on hormones? Yeah. So women don't age in the same fashion that men do. So if we're talking about women who are premenopausal, naturally have a natural menstrual cycle. So in their you know, late teens to mid thirties, um, if you start seeing changes in the bleed pattern, you start seeing changes in menstrual cycle length and start skipping menstrual cycle more and more, this is more of a sign that you're anovulatory and you're not producing enough progesterone and you also have low levels of estrogen. We see this so often in recreational all the way through elite athletes because they are not optimizing their fueling. So we look at, it's called a low energy availability. So they might do a trend of fasting or doing fasted training, or they might um, inadvertently delay eating after exercise. And so their body stays in this breakdown state, this catabolic state, and the brain perceives it as not enough nutrition. So it signals the body to start conserving. So one of the first things that goes is a luteinizing hormone pulse and an estrogen pulse. So when we start, first start seeing all these perturbations and bleed patterns and menstrual cycle lengths, it's a, it's a really good telling sign to pull back or kind of relook at how you are fueling and what kind of training you're doing. As we start to get into our late 30s, early 40s, and we start seeing missteps in how we're responding to training, where we're having poor sleep or putting on body fat, we're tired but wired, this is more of a sign of perimenopause. And this is a natural function of getting older. You'll have uh, more estrogen dominance, or you might have really low estrogen. It's really hard to pinpoint. Um, but this is something that if you are having severe symptomology and you're really anxious, lots of mood disorder, really super, super tired, you might have vasomotor symptoms, then this is something to talk to your physician about because it could be that you're low in testosterone and we need to boost the testosterone so that we can convert some of that testosterone back into estrogen. Or it might be that you have more and more anovulatory cycles as a, as a symptom of perimenopause and we need to perhaps think about menopause hormone therapy, or we have to start thinking more about what kind of training we're doing from an intensity perspective to get that boost of growth hormone and testosterone post-exercise. So there's lots of little things to think about. So when we're younger, it's more about dropping volume and really paying attention to fueling in and around training. When we get into our late 30s, early 40s, it's, a, it's more of a physiological function of ovarian hormones. And then we can optimize um, like boosting testosterone and estrogen by changing the intensity and dropping the volume. Increase intensity, drop volume. So talking about like perimenopause, I've had friends that have reached that stage and um, they've mentioned that it, it can, they can have these emotional swings and they can um, just feel like um, they, they struggle mentally. 
So is the main way to decipher between a symptom of perimenopause and like a mental health issue to go get testing and get their hormones checked? It's really hard because if you go get your blood done, it's just a one point in time check of hormones. We need to see the trend because uh, you might go get your bloods tested and your estrogen is really low, your testosterone is really low, and your follicular stimulating hormone is low. And then you go back a few weeks later and they're all elevated. Uh, we, physicians really go on symptomology. So if there's a lot of mood disorder, um, one of the first things I tell women to start doing is taking creatine. So three to five grams of creatine is really super effective in um, helping stabilize mood more so than uh, women who have low grade of depression and take an SSRI. So creatine is one of the first steps there. And if it interferes with sleep and the depressive and, and anxious symptoms are from poor sleep, then we look at sleep hygiene and perhaps using L-theanine to help induce more of that parasympathetic response. And we're going to come back to peri and postmenopause and what people can do to optimize that time in their life from a health, nutrition, and fitness um, standpoint. But I want to go back and spend some more time on premenopause. And let's just say that um, somebody who's 25, 30, 35 years old um, is listening to this and they're trying to do everything they, they could, everything that they possibly can to optimize their health during, during this time. Um, I want to talk about that. But first, like I think as a precursor, if you could just outline what a healthy menstrual cycle looks like. So that way, if people are, maybe they're, they're not informed or they'd like to know more so that they can understand if something's off, they'll be able to do so. Yeah, sure. Um, so a normal menstrual cycle, we talk about from one day of bleeding all the way through the month to the next day of bleeding. And a, a cycle is anywhere from 25 to 40 days. So when we talk about 28 days, that's just textbook. But most women don't have 28 day. We have the follicular phase, which is the low hormone phase. And in a normal cycle, it's anywhere from 14 to 20 days. And ovulation happens at the end of that. After ovulation, we have what we call the luteal phase or the high hormone phase with estrogen progesterone coming up. And that usually is about 12 to 14 days. The follicular phase, the low hormone phase, is the one that shortens and lengthens, um, which is why people have either 25 to 40 day cycles. We talk about the bleed phase. That's around five to seven days. And every woman's bleed pattern is a little bit different. The caveat is if a woman is having significantly I guess, debilitating cramps and bleeding, that's heavy menstrual bleeding. And that's not normal. So we can look at that as a separate issue and you can get some medical help for that. But for the most part, we're like low hormone phase, ovulation, high hormone phase, and then it repeats. And then so if something seems to be off with the menstrual cycle, that's a time to potentially go and get, get your estrogen levels checked or consult with your physician to see what's going on there to make sure that there's not anything serious going on and seeing if you can kind of recalibrate all that, right? Yeah. And I often recommend women just to get their uh, bloods done every three to four months, just to be able to see a trend. I think in the US, they might let you do it every six months. Um, and this is so that you have a history and you can see the fluctuation. And ideally knowing what phase of the menstrual cycle you are when you go in to get your blood test done. If you're really curious about estrogen levels, you want to get it done on day two of your cycle. If you're really curious about progesterone levels, then we look at day 21 or 22 of your cycle. So I want to take it a bit broad for a second and get specifically how people can adjust their diet and exercise around their cycle. But traditionally speaking, um, there's so much information out there. There's so many different workout modalities. There's boot camp classes, there's CrossFit, there's resistance training, there's cardio, there's this, there's that. What do you believe are the biggest levers that a that this young, uh, that what are the biggest levers that a female between the ages of say 25 to 35 can pull um, as far as what they include in their exercise uh, regimen? I'm going to, you know, the big rock across the board for women is strength training. 
And when you are in your reproductive years, it doesn't really matter if you're looking at hypertrophy type or power type training or pure strength type training. The goal is to build and maintain lean mass. And then you can complement it with whatever kind of um, cardiovascular stuff you want to do. If you're training specific for endurance, then you look at including endurance stuff. If you're looking for general health and trying to maintain high-end fitness and, and lower body fat, then you look at doing some high-intensity sprint interval training type stuff. Um, but as you start to get older, especially when you hit that perimenopause stuff, this is where the big rock of power-based resistance training and specifically high-intensity sprint interval training comes into play. When we're looking at the younger set, our 25-year-old avatar here, we can look at periodizing or doing some undulation type work within the menstrual cycle where we're looking at how the immune system behaves, how the body responds to stress. So we can look at doing heavier, higher load type work in the low hormone phase through ovulation. Then after ovulation, we start to have a change in stress resilience and the immune system where we have more pro-inflammatory responses. So it's a little bit harder to adapt. So we want to try to look at what kinds of things can we do that kind of dampen inflammation. So this would be more steady state type work and maybe looking at doing more power-based training instead of the hypertrophy type training. Because then we're looking at how we're working with the way that our hormones affect our um, central nervous system, our parasympathetic responses, as well as the immune system changes. Because if we're trying to do a heavy high load when our body's already prone to inflammatory responses, we're not going to get adaptation because that inflammation is going to dampen our adaptation. Um, before we get into the specifics on what you mean by like a you know, shifting more into a power type training. People are incredibly busy now. They're, they have so much going on. Um, and it's, I think it can be hard sometimes to track all this stuff. Um, have you found any tools to be useful for somebody to, tr to track their cycle so they can understand how to curate their um, exercise program around that? Yeah, and it depends on the person. Like if you're a person who's pen and paper, type person, then you're just going to mark on your calendar, like the first day your your um, bleed starts and maybe make some annotations throughout the month of how you feel, how you slept. If you're more digital oriented, then there are a couple of apps you can use. You can use um, Wild AI that uses um, female environment, artificial intelligence to learn your cycle and feedback to you specifics. So like if always you're marking down on day 23 of your cycle that you feel flat, then it's going to come up and say, hey, tomorrow's day 23. You might want to reevaluate what kind of training you're doing. More 2D approach would be using something like Fitter Woman or Hello Clothes. So some of these digital platforms that are more um, just tracking like where you are in your cycle, but not necessarily feeding back information. Um, but it really has to be what works for the individual. Um, and then moving on to like this, I mean, I, I get as specific as you can get like protocol for how this young female avatar, um, let's say this, this 30 year old female avatar could, um, you know, work out. Um, you said power based programming. Does that mean like you're focusing on, you know, three to five reps is it two to four reps? Like what does the programming look like and what types of exercises should they be doing? Yeah. Um, when we talk about power base, we're looking more at compound movement. So your deadlifts, your squats, your Romanian deadlifts, push press, those kinds of things, not fully Olympic lifts, but really looking at compound movements and doing a three to five set rule, right? So your three to five exercises, three to five sets around three minutes recovery between. Um, so it's, it's really accessing the central nervous system. It's not fuel depleting because we want to work on that neuromuscular recruitment. We want to work on the speed of contraction and we don't want to be fuel depleting because that becomes more inflammatory. Um, and this becomes a bit scary for a lot of women who are going into the gym because they don't really feel comfortable and they're not that familiar with lifting heavy loads. So if we're looking at power-based training and it's 80% or more of one rep max, a lot of women uh, shy away from that, but they shouldn't. Like we want people to phase into it. We want people to move well and become confident in that. 
and then slowly start to put on load as they become more confident and move well. And so do you recommend um, women who are, like you said, maybe a bit nervous to get started with this, they're a bit overwhelmed, they maybe don't like going into the, to the gym, do you recommend them working with a coach or do you recommend them like watching some videos online to get themselves like acclimated to this process? Like how do you um, kind of casually get them started? I'm really fond of the idea of working with a kinesiotherapist or a physical therapist that knows movement, movement standards. Because uh, if you have one or two sessions with them, they can identify faults in your movement and then give you recommendations of how to correct that fault. And then if you're really uncomfortable going into the gym, then there's some good platforms where you can learn how to do a deadlift properly. You can learn how to squat properly, but never underestimate getting a really good PT to take you through a program, teach you and watch you. And you don't have to invest a lot of time or money into it, but you definitely want some outside help so that you don't start doing movements with poor technique, because then that loads you up for injury. So three to five exercises, three to five sets, three to five minute rest in between sets, correct? Um, what's the frequency like? Do you recommend two days a week, three days a week, four days a week? What's your recommendation on that? For a 30-year-old, minimum two days a week. And then so how do we, let's just say there's that person that is I don't want to pick on specific companies, but they're going to certain classes four or five, six days a week, and it's just like crazy intensity, right? And they're just doing that for an hour, hour and a half, 45 minutes, whatever it is, every single day. And they're burning calories, right? They're burning more calories, you know, maybe throughout that session that they made during a session like we're describing. How do you, what's the elevator pitch to convince this person to be okay with dialing it back and, and, and convincing them that less is more? That is uh, talking to everyone who's like in their 30s to 50s, right? Because the, the mentality of calorie in, calorie out, got to burn, be high intense. Um, it's really asking like, what is their goal? Why are you going to these classes every day? Is it for the social aspect or are you looking for body comp change and to get fitter? Because if you're looking for body comp change and to get fitter, then you're wasting your time and your money. Because if you're always putting yourself into this moderate intensity, then you're elevating baseline cortisol. You're not getting the same kind of growth hormone and testosterone response that we find after intense exercise or intense lifting. Um, so it's kind of like you're paying money to hit a brick wall. If we are concerned about body comp and weight gain, then it's about, okay, we want to reduce the intensity because we want to reduce the cortisol. If we're reducing the cortisol, we also want to bump up the protein because if we're reducing cortisol, we're also reducing systemic inflammation, which then feeds forward to uh, less bloating and puffiness. We also see the body starts to kind of release body fat, so to speak. And the protein part is so important, uh, especially if we're doing a lot of, of breakdown type activities. Um, I try to get people to drop at least one class a week if they're doing four or five classes or more in a week and be like, okay, let's take one, have more recovery day, but I don't mean sit on your butt all day. Let's go and look at functional movement. Let's look at active recovery and let's see how you sleep. Because if you're always hitting yourself and you're going so hard every day, it does interfere with sleep because you can't get into a parasympathetic drive. That's how you get really good sleep architecture. So it, it's kind of a biohacking of let's pull you back just one day. Let's pull you back one day and see how it goes. And then maybe let's pull you back two days and, and substitute those high intense classes with something less intense, but still beneficial to the body. So what I'm hearing you say is for people to dial back these workout classes and look more into functional movements and doing compound movements, whether it be push press, bent over row, pull up, squat, deadlift, various types of lunges, et cetera, et cetera. And then like building off of that and see how their, their body composition changes. Yeah. You mentioned cortisol and we, I've talked, we've talked extensively on the podcast, how, you know, chronic stress obviously isn't, isn't good for you. Um, but as it relates, as cortisol relates to weight gain, you've heard a lot that, you know, oh my gosh, it's just I'm just stressed and that's why I'm gaining weight. Like, why does that happen? Yeah. Some cortisol is good. 
uh, it allows us to function well. Um, but too much is not good because if we have too much circulating cortisol, it becomes our new baseline. And cortisol is is primarily a flight or fight response hormone. It's a sympathetic driver. And if we have a high amount of baseline cortisol, we're always in a sympathetic drive. So that means our body can never relax. If it can't relax and it's always in that prime state to actually accelerate and fight and move away from the beast, which means there has to be extra fuel to do that. And if we are in that higher baseline sympathetic drive, the fuel for women ends up being fat. Because as I uh, was talking to you off the recording, women go through blood sugar and then tap into free fatty acids. So the automatic response for a female body under high stress is to store body fat. So if we're looking at, you know, how am I going to lose weight and how am I going to sleep better? It is about how are we mitigating this elevated cortisol? We have to have times where we are looking at instigating the parasympathetic drive and not staying tired, but wired. Do you think it's more common for the same female avatar given the people that you've worked with that the reason that they can't lose the excess body fat they want, is it because of elevated cortisol levels or is it because um, they're eating too many calories? For the most part, it's elevated cortisol and not eating enough because so many women, um, especially in the 30, 40 age bracket, fall into these trendy diets of fasting or keto or whatever is popular. And again, most of that data comes from either clinical participants, clinical data, so obese, sedentary women or male data who are in an athletic population, but it doesn't transfer over to women. Women do better in a fed state. We know this uh, through really robust research. And if a woman is not following up her program, her workout with any kind of protein or carbohydrate, then her body stays in this breakdown state, this sympathetic drive, this breakdown state, which then signals the hypothalamus that, hey, you know, there's no nutrition coming in. We have to start downturning thyroid. We have to start downturning all of these other um, hormone, I guess, pulses so that we can conserve energy. So when I'm talking to someone who is like this avatar and is hammering it hard, usually gets up, gets to the gym first thing, then, you know, showers at the gym, goes to work, has a long day at work, comes home, might meet people after work, um, and is just continuously on the go and isn't fueling properly for exercise stress or daily stress. We pick up a plan and be like, okay, we're going to make sure that you have protein before and after regularly throughout the day. Not only do they find they have more energy, but the um, weight starts to shift and they start sleeping better. It takes about three weeks. And then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, what's just happened? And it's it's complementing what the body needs and what the brain is perceiving at the same time as dialing back that cortisol. You mentioned fasting, and obviously that's a massive trend right now. Um, I actually fast, but I don't, I don't, I I would just say I fast for like 14 hours. It's nothing crazy extensive, but um, it's definitely something that fits within my lifestyle. And, and um, But fasting is very trendy right now. And a lot of people are doing it. A lot of women are doing it. What do you consider to be fasting as far as to the point where it can be detrimental? And explain like like why um, or and explain like why some of these fad diets can be so dangerous for, for women. Okay. So if we talk about fasting itself. If you're someone who gets up, has breakfast, does training, eats throughout the day, and then you stop eating di- or you stop eating after dinner and you don't eat again until breakfast. So you have a 12 to 14 hour overnight fast. That can be called fasting or it can be called normal eating. That's fine. So when you start getting into the ex- exaggerated fast where you don't eat until noon and then you have a small window in the afternoon where you're eating and then you have dinner, then you don't eat again until noon the next day. This is where it starts to get into a problem, um, both for men and women, but specifically for women. From a chronobiological standpoint, we're seeing in the research that those people who delay their calorie intake till noon have most of the calories in the afternoon and then um, you know don't eat after dinner and they maintain that cycle where they're eating noon to maybe 6 p.m., there's a higher incidence of obesity and a higher incidence of sarcopenia. 
both in men and women. When we look at active women who are doing a lot of their training fasted, we see there's a higher incidence of REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport, and the syndromes there, and a lot of endocrine dysfunction. And this has to do really with the hypothalamus. Because if we look at the hypothalamus, in men, there's one area in the hypothalamus that has kispeptin neurons. In women, there are two areas that have kispeptin neurons. Now, why kispeptin is really important is that it is an appetite control center and an endocrine control center. So for women, the baseline, I guess, calorie intake before we start to see perturbance in our endocrine function is around 35 calories per kilogram fat-free mass. For men, it's 15. So if we're looking at that threshold right there, we see that when women start to do a lot of exercise stress or a lot of physical stress, be it you know life stress when they're awake, this threshold really perturbs the kispeptin neurons. And when the kispeptin neurons are like, hey, there's not enough fuel coming in, then they start to downregulate. If we downregulate, then this is where we start to see that decrease in our luteinizing hormone pulse, decrease in estrogen pulse, a cessation of menstrual cycle function and thyroid function. We also see a misstep in our appetite and our appetite hormones because estrogen uh, drives and controls appetite as well. For men, we don't have the same thing. So when we start looking at fasting and the data on fasting, the outcomes for men that is more parasympathetic drive, we see better telomere um, responses and we see better health outcomes. It's because the threshold for perturbance is not the same in men as it is for women. Gotcha. And then, so I know you've, you've spent a few minutes talking about like what not what necessarily not to do. Let's talk about like what they can, what what females can do um, to optimize their nutrition. You mentioned that protein is like the biggest lever that they can pull from a, a macronutrient um, standpoint, making sure they're optimizing that. How much protein should they be aiming to get? How does that um, how does that differ around like workout timing and then? What else um, should encompass their diet? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, House of Macadamias. I have always been a big fan of macadamia nuts because of their taste, convenience, and incredible health benefits. They have arguably the best fat profile of any nut as they are loaded with monounsaturated fats. Macadamia oil has more monounsaturated fat than olive oil. Macadamias are also the only nut rich in rare omega-7 fatty acids, which can support natural collagen production, glucose metabolism, and help reduce inflammation. Traditionally, macadamias are super expensive, but that's where House of Macadamias comes in. They are changing the game. House of Macadamias has vertically integrated with 90 plus farmers so that they can make accessible one-of-a-kind macadamia products that are fresh from harvest with unmatched quality and price points. Their range of products have no added sugar or artificial ingredients, and range from hand-sorted nuts with savory all-natural flavors to nuts dipped in sugar-free chocolate to creamy nut butters and cold-pressed extra virgin macadamia oil, which is perfect for cooking given its high smoke point and buttery flavor. And of course, they also sell simply salted macadamia nuts where the only other ingredient is sea salt. House of Macadamias never runs discounts, but they have a very special offer for my listeners. For a very limited time, they are gifting a free box of their sea salted macadamia nuts that are worth $35 when you visit houseofmacadamias.com slash Doug. You can also get 20% off your entire order with the code Doug20. Again, visit houseofmacadamias.com slash Doug to get a free box of their sea salted macadamia nuts, or you can get 20% off your entire order with the code Doug20. Now back to the show. So if I were to do like the guidelines, right, where we look at, uh, Premenopausal women getting 1.4 to 1.8 grams per kilogram of body weight a day. Peri and postmenopausal, it's around 1.8 to 2.2 grams. But what does that look like in real life, right? People are like, what does that mean? So if I were to say someone gets up and uh, has a training session at 6 or 6.30 in the morning, if it is strength training, then we're looking at 10 to 15 grams of protein beforehand. And that can be a couple of tablespoons of cottage cheese. It could be a scoop of protein powder in your coffee. It's not a lot. 
If we are looking at some kind of cardiovascular work with some strength, then we want to add an extra 30 grams of carbohydrate to that 15 grams of protein. So that could be a banana or half a banana that you're adding to your protein fortified coffee. Again, not a lot, but it is enough to signal the hypothalamus that, yeah, there's some nutrition coming in. We also know that by having that protein before a strength training session, it increases the post-exercise um, oxygen consumption. So basically keeps your metabolism elevated um, for a little bit longer period of time than if you didn't have it. Post-exercise, super important, regardless of what you do, is women who are younger want to get between 25 and 30 grams of protein. So that's about palm size. And that can be in breakfast. doesn't have to be something special. Me breakfast with carbohydrate. So about uh, one gram of carbohydrate per kilogram or half a gram per pound. Um, and then throughout the day, we're looking at around 30 grams at each meal. So again, that's palm size portion of protein at every meal and about 10 to 15 grams per every snack. Um, when we're looking at the peri to postmenopausal set, it's a little bit more than that. It's palm and a half size for every meal and uh, about that 15 grams for every snack. And then for the 30-year-old avatar outside of protein, um, I know that um, one of the other big trends now is like going low-carb, keto, and you know low-fat was also a craze back in the day as well. Um, what, what are the guidelines around the other macronutrients in your opinion based on the research that um, this, this avatar should really include in their diet? Yeah, carbohydrate availability is another big one. So if uh, someone is trying to be an athlete, knowing that we say a person is athlete if they exercise on purpose, low carbohydrate availability is one of the leading reasons for a lot of metabolic and cardiovascular perturbances that we see. Um, so making sure there's adequate carbohydrate. Uh, what does that mean? That means that when you are in the high hormone phase, that you really want to make sure that you're eating some carbohydrate before and after uh, each exercise session, because the elevation in estrogen progesterone really inhibits your body's ability to access carbohydrate. So again, it all comes down to how are we making fuel available for the exercise stress at hand? We're in the lower hormone phase. We're just having regular bits of carbohydrate throughout the day. So that is colorful fruit and veg. Don't be afraid of sourdough bread. Don't be afraid of grains. We need carbs. Women need carbs. And again, it brings it back to that threshold response that the hypothalamus has. Um, when we start looking at keto, we start looking at the low carb, high fat. The baseline for that really is to become, quote, more metabolically efficient but women are already there by the nature of sex differences that occur within the mitochondria that I've talked about. We already have that metabolic efficiency. We're already able to burn more free fatty acids. Estrogen boosts that as well. So when we're looking at the metabolic data that comes out through low carb, high fat or ketogenic, again, it's based on male physiology where men don't have the advantage of more uh, protein for fatty acid use. And they don't have the expression of estrogen that changes the body's availability of carbohydrate. So women need more carbohydrate. We need to have adequate carbohydrate for blood glucose because that's what our body uses. And also with the eye to keeping the kisspeptin neurons happy. And so talking about healthy fats, um, what roles do um, do healthy fats play in, in, in um, this, the same uh, avatars health that we're talking about? And then what are the, what are the best types of healthy fats in your opinion for this specific person? I'm glad we're not in the eighties in the snack well craze of, you know, no fat, no fat. <laughs> uh, fat is good. Our body needs it. Don't be afraid of it, but we look at it from nuts and seeds and avocados. Um, even some animal fat is fine. Uh, it's just not going above that 35% of your total calories from fat. Um, but yeah, don't be afraid of it. Include it in every meal. We know things like olive oil and salad makes the uh, vitamins and minerals in the greens more available. Um, so don't be light-handed in the healthy fats. T talking about like an issue that I think is, um, I guess like brings this all together is I would say that most, a lot of the people that I've come across in my 
um, career um, and even just people that I know, like their main goal is they want to look a certain way. They want to be lean. They want to be strong. They want to look good and feel good in their clothes. Um, but I think sometimes based on what people may, might see on the internet, their idea of the idea of of what health and being lean looks like is different from what the science actually says. So if you could talk about like what is a healthy body fat percentage for this female avatar, what does being lean truly mean? Um, I think people would really appreciate that. Yeah. So when we look at like the basic science and talk about percent body fat, um, women have 12 to 13% essential fat. So that's, you know, in and around the organs, myelin sheath, that kind of stuff. But when we start really talking about percent body fat, um, it's really hard to dial it in. And the fact that what we want to know is health status. How are you feeling? What's your power to weight ratio? Are you improving in the gym? How are you sleeping? How is your resting heart rate? How's your heart rate variability? So all those training metrics are more important than percent body fat. Even though people are like, oh, I want to be as lean as possible, that might not be what genetically you're predisposed to doing or how happy your body is. If we're looking at images on the internet, most of those are photoshopped or through filters. We look at elite athletes. That's not the ideal. If we're talking about a bell curve, right? We have people who are either end of the bell curve and elite athletes sit on the very far right side of the bell curve because they're always on the teetering point of being overtrained or sick because they have to maintain a certain performance standard. If we read a lot of Trent Sellingworth's work about his wife, who is a professional Olympic caliber runner, she perturbates in her body composition across the year. It's higher in body fat off season starts the season higher body fat, and then it naturally starts to come down as she starts racing more to a peak race. And that's healthy. Trying to maintain an ideal of a body fat is not sustainable. So it's more about the health metrics and being comfortable in your body, but also making sure that where you sit allows you to sleep well, recover well, not get sick easily, um, be able to keep improving in your power, keep improving in your strength, keep improving in your speed. And your body will naturally fall into where its ideal body fat is. What are some healthy metrics, targets that this female avatar, this female avatar can aim for can, can set a goal towards when it comes to their strength meaning should they be able to deadlift a certain amount of their weight should they be able to do x amount of pull-ups like what are some some healthy ways to measure that uh yeah it's again it's hard really because it, what kind of training is she doing what is her end goal right so like i have eight factor and it took me 11 years to do one pull-up no matter how much i wanted to do 10 or 11 pull-ups or more just not that feasible because I have such long levers. But for deadlifts, it's super easy because I have long levers. So if our avatar is someone who has long levers, then the metrics and output that she's going to have is going to be different from someone who has a long torso. Um, again, so that's like body shape and genetics that come into play. The best way to look about it is if you're doing undulating periodization and looking at stepwise increments in strength, you want to have a test-retest situation every about 12 weeks and see how you're progressing. And you might get to a point where you're like, oh my gosh, I can deadlift 100 kilos, so around the 220-pound mark. And that's massive for a woman. If she's training specifically for Olympic lifting, then it could be a different story. But if she's training for life, then... You don't have to be so focused on what is one health parameter, but just make sure that functionally you can move and move well. And if someone whacks on extra weight, then yeah, it's going to be challenging, but you're not going to get injured. Um, that all makes sense. Like making sure that you're focusing on just progressive overload and making sure that you're getting better and that you're gradually feeling better, getting stronger, sleeping better, and that sort of thing. From a body composition standpoint, um, I know that depending on where it's located, excess body fat can cause some health problems long-term. Um, so I'm, I don't want to completely say that we should avoid paying attention to that. Um, where does it matter most for this female avatar as far as where they, they store body fat? 
If there's a lot of abdominal adiposity or visceral abdominal fat, then that's where we have a worry because that's more, quote, active fat that becomes an issue with metabolic disease. Storing around the hips and thighs, not so much. And it mobilizes easier from the hips and thighs than it does the abdomen. If we are looking at our avatar having a lot of abdominal adiposity and going, I just can't get rid of it, then we can look at um, periodizing our nutrition as well, where we have times where there's a high intake of protein under heavy loads and lower carbohydrate, and then we periodize more carbohydrate back in to help kind of get rid of the um, visceral fat. But we have to be very specific on the kind of training that we're doing when we're trying to do that. So we want to look at plyometric work. We want to look at sprint interval training and heavy lifting because that, that combination of those three actually targets to reduce visceral fat. Um, so it's not something that we do all the time. It's just a training block to start to reduce it. And then once you reduce it, we can do things to manipulate to keep it low. Talk about uh, the protocol for high intensity interval training and what that looks like, because I feel like that can sometimes be confused with some of these exercise classes that we're trying to scale back. I have no problems calling out things like Orange Theory and F45. <laughs> I'll say that right now. Don't, don't pick on my boy, my boy, Mark Wahlberg. Well, you know, <laughs> I will. It's okay for dudes. But when we're looking at those kinds of classes, it puts people squarely in moderate intensity. It's not true high intensity. If we look at what true high intensity training is, true high intensity training is an interval that's anywhere from one minutes to five minutes at 85 to 110% of your max. The higher intensity, the lower the interval is going to last, right? So if we're looking at a true high intensity class, it might be five to 10 minutes of mobilization warm up. Then we're doing four sets of four minutes on, two minutes off. And that four minutes is at 85 to 90% of your max, and then a cool down, right? So we're not maintaining this 70 to 80% heart rate that most of these exercise classes have people doing, where they feel smashed, but it actually hasn't done anything except put them in a tired state. One thing that I really want people to understand is if you're doing sprint interval training, it's so much better from a cardiovascular and a metabolic standpoint, especially if you're trying to strip down body fat than doing high intensity interval work. So true sprint interval training, each interval is 30 seconds or less. And the fitter you go, the shorter the um, recovery is. So it might start off with 30 seconds of full gas, 110 or more of what you can do. So you feel like you're going to vomit for 30 seconds. And then you have two to four minutes complete recovery. And then you go again. And you might only be able to do two or three of those when you first start. But the idea of the recovery is so that you can hit that interval as hard as possible without a real fatigue delay. And as you get fitter, it might be you're doing 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off times nine. Um, but the goal, again, is that 30 seconds on is as hard as you possibly can. And when we look at the research that's that looking at what it does, we see better vascular control, so better blood pressure, better cardiovascular health. We see better blood glucose control, less stimulus for putting on and storing fat. And we have a subsequent increase in growth hormone and testosterone after these sprint interval sessions, which then feeds forward into not only better hormone control, but there's also a feed forward to better sympathetic drive and better sleep. So if we're really trying to maximize our health, we need to incorporate that sprint interval training much more so than we're looking at the high intensity, like four minute intervals. And so as far as program design, um, I know like a theme of the conversation has been less is more, um, but just from a convenience standpoint, would you recommend like throwing in like some of the sprint training towards the end of a resistance training workout, or would you recommend doing it on a separate day? Would you recommend doing it like later in the day or in, before a workout like, or before a resistance workout? Like how do you, how do you recommend all that? If you're time crunched, then um, I often look at someone who warms up with box jumps before their heavy resistance training and then finishes off with a couple of sprints on the bike or the treadmill, right? So you're getting kind of a plyo warm up and then you're getting your heavy resistance training, which is the bulk of what you want to do. And then you finish up with some sprint stuff. If you have more luxury of time, then you'd separate them out. You would be like, one day I'm doing heavy lifting. The next day I'm really focusing on sprint interval training. 
Um, but again, you know, everyone's time poor and time management is one of those things. So it's, it's not detrimental if you do resistance and then finish off with some sprint work, as long as you don't do it every day. So shifting gears, I think we've, we've, we've talked extensively about this 30 year old, um, pre-menopause, uh, avatar, uh, female that we're, we've tried to, um, essentially explain like the ins and outs, soup to nuts, and exactly what this person should do from a health and fitness standpoint. Um, or explain the complete like ins and outs, like protocol for um, what they can do from an exercise, health, fitness standpoint. Shifting to the peri uh, postmenopausal avatar, I talked to you um, before we recorded about you know my extent, my training history with clients, and I have you know, this, this female avatar that I've worked with where they, um, are super into health and fitness. They're into the latest trends. Um, they say they're not eating, um, a lot of calories They're eating health. They're eating, uh, healthy. They're taking supplements They're doing all the things yet. They're still stressed. They're still carrying, you know, some body fat that they don't want. They're not feeling energetically optimized. Um, talk a bit about like what's going on there. And then what are some things that this particular person can do to mitigate these symptoms? Yeah. So when we hit perimenopause, you have early perimenopause where, you know, like I was talking about earlier, where people are like, I'm not responding to my training very well. What's going on? But the real concern is about three to four years before that one point in time we call menopause. So menopause is actually one day on the calendar that marks 12 months of no periods. The three to four years leading up to that is where we see the biggest body composition change, where we start seeing more visceral fat, we start losing our lean mass, we start losing our bone. And then after that one point in time, postmenopause, it carries through a little bit and then it stops. We start seeing better body composition. So when we're talking about your avatar, who's like, I'm doing all the things, but I'm still really tired. I'm still holding on to body fat. What's going on? It's because we're having these hormone shifts. So we look at puberty, like I said earlier, and we have um, girls who start to have all these changes in their bodies when estrogen and progesterone come on board. When we hit the other end and we hit perimenopause, there's all these changes to the body that occur when these hormones start dwindling. Uh, so specifically, we lose anabolic stimulus. So we become more um, anabolically resistant to protein and we become more anabolically resistant to hypertrophy type training. So when we're looking at a woman who's like, I'm losing lean mass and I'm putting on body fat, what do I do? Immediately look at lifting heavy. So this is where that 80, 85% one rep max type work comes into play. And it's all central nervous system driven. As I was talking about earlier about estrogen, estrogen is so tightly tied to skeletal muscle um, quality and ability for neuromuscular firing. We have to look at an external stress that is going to help the body adapt how estrogen used to. So that's that heavy lifting. We look at um, abdominal adiposity or that visceral fat. It's because we're having this change in estrogen progesterone and the body's in this really significant sympathetic drive and we have an elevation in baseline cortisol. So of course we see more visceral fat. What do we do there? Plyometrics. Plyometrics, super important because it's a really high intense um, stretch rebound response from a metabolic standpoint, it's telling the body, hey, 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 we need to not get this visceral fat going. We need more carbohydrate available within the liver and the muscle. And we need to not have this visceral fat because it's extra weight that we don't want because we can't move it as fast as we want. Um, and then when we're looking from like, what do we do for other means of, of that top end metabolic control? Again, it's a sprint interval training. So if we start implementing training changes and we're looking at polarizing where it's either full gas or it's really slow, slow, easy recovery, never in that moderate intensity stuff, we start to see really good body um, body recomp. The other problem with peri and postmenopause is that sympathetic drive and the neurotransmitter changes that are happening because estrogen is really tied to dopamine and serotonin we have to look at the gut microbiome. So when we're looking at the gut microbiome and uh, taking care of the gut microbiome, it's really essential 
Because when we start losing our hormones, our sex hormones, we lose diversity in the gut microbiome. We start having more of an obesogenic type gut microbiome. So having an eye to really hammering in the prebiotics of the leafy veggies, the really fibrous veggies and fruit, and having probiotics through food, not over-the-counter type pills. This increases the diversity of the gut microbiome, which then feeds forward to better serotonin release because 95% of serotonin production is from the gut, not from the brain which allows us to have better dopamine and serotonin responses. It also allows us to have better BDNF, which is important for our brain and brain volume, which helps with cognition and function. And then having a really diverse gut microbiome also helps with body composition. So the big rocks for peri and postmenopause, again, is the resistance training gut microbiome. And then from a programming standpoint, um, I know you mentioned the big rocks as far as exercise are um, resistance training, um, compound movements, plyometrics, stuff like that. I know that injury prevention also becomes more important um, as we, as we get older, whether you're male or female. Um, how does that all play into some of the stuff that you're recommending? Yeah. And again, when people listen to this, it's like, I don't want people to automatically jump into heavy lifting and plyometrics. We want to take an eye to it as not being a training block, but what are we doing for the rest of our lives? So we phase into it over a longer period of time. So this is where we're doing a lot of mobility work. We're doing a lot of um, like functional movement, seeing how we're moving. If we're not comfortable jumping, then maybe we do some French contrast training first. So then our body learns how to jump after a heavy load. Um, and then we start to gradually add in some of the heavier type plyometric jump work, or we can look at battle ropes that gives a plyometric movement without the jump movement. So there are different options to take as we get into it, but I don't want people to automatically change and go, okay, I heard this podcast. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do plyometrics and heavy lifting. That's not what it's about. Cause I don't want people to get injured. I want people to look at it as what am I going to be doing when I'm 80? I'm you know, 45 now, what am I going to be doing when I'm 80? And I want to be hitting the gym. I want to be running upstairs. So let's take care of the body now make sure we move really well, make sure we phase into this different type of training really well. And it might take a month. It might take six months until you actually get to the point where you're able to move those loads and do the plyometric work without fear of injury. Because a lot of these things that you're mentioning are all modifiable, right? You can start with even like a sled push, you can start like doing intervals on an assault bike. You can start the rower. Like these things for the most part are all pretty safe for most people to start doing, right? And, and, and modifiable based on effort. Exactly. I always get pushback from uh, women who are in late perimenopause, early postmenopause, because there's a significant increase in wrist, hand, and knee osteoarthritis at this point in time. So people are like, I can't jump. I can't jump. I'm like, well, plyometric doesn't necessarily mean jump training. It's that explosive movement that you can do through modifications. It can be, you know, a plyo push-ups. It can be um, the battle rips. It can be, you know, maybe you're stepping up and then soft land jump down. So a low depth box jump or something like that. Uh, so just like you're saying, it's giving options and modifications so that it can be inclusive for everyone. And then as far as the prescription for for nutrition, you talked about the importance of optimizing the gut microbiome. Um, you also mentioned that protein is is more important during this stage because the body doesn't absorb it as well. Talk a bit about like the the recommendations for that, and then any other big rocks you'd recommend um, from a nutrition standpoint. Yeah, we start to see more insulin resistance. So the types of carbohydrates that you eat really uh, are impactful. So this is why I'm like, you want to reach for the fibrous fruit and veg because fiber helps offset some of the blood sugar spikes that can happen if you're eating less fibrous or higher fruit sugars or higher sugar fruit. Um, and then when we're talking about protein, the muscle tissue is less responsive to anabolism because we don't have the estrogen help. So when we look at people saying 25 grams post-exercise to you know, get muscle protein synthesis for up to 48 hours, we know that in older women, especially peri and post-menopause, it's 40 grams. 
So we get that, that leucine trigger around the 40 gram because of this anabolic resistance. So super important to keep regular doses of protein throughout the day. And people will be like, what, you want me to get 135 to 150 grams of protein a day? That's whoa, so much. I'm not talking about just eating meat. I'm talking about you can have nuts and seeds, legumes, sprouted bread. You can have yogurt. You can have eggs. You can have meat. You can have fish. You can have tempeh, edamame, just almost Everything has a little bit of protein in it. So just with the eye of what you're putting on your plate has some protein in it is going to get you there. And we talked about um, some of the things to pay attention to and focus on from the the uh, pre-menopause avatar. We talked about like the cycle. We talked about estrogen levels and stuff like that. As far as the the peri, as far as the peri, the menopausal, the postmenopausal avatar. Um, are there specific markers that you would recommend getting checked every three to six months? Um, is there any other like signs and symptoms that they should really pay attention to before consulting a physician? Like what what are what does that look like? The conversation around menopause is lacking really in society. So, you know, people will be like, Oh, I'm really irritable. I must not be getting enough sleep. Or I'm having lots of problems sleeping, I must be highly stressed. And there are no real blood tests to, to get until like you really start to see changes in your bleed pattern where you're like, whoa, that's kind of weird. Uh, now I'm spotting instead of bleeding and I haven't had a period in three months. Maybe I'm amenorrheic. Those are times to go get checked. Um, the caveat really is if you're having significant symptomology that's interfering with daily life, then talk to your physician about using menopause hormone therapy because it is a therapy and it is designed to help get you through all of the transition. But really note that it does not improve body composition. A lot of people think, oh, I'll go on hormone therapy and then I won't have to worry about my body composition changing. It doesn't do that. It's it's not the same as your endogenous hormones. Also, as you go into perimenopause, you have a decrease in the sensitivity of your estrogen progesterone receptors. So when you start whacking your body with high levels of exogenous hormones, it does not do the same as your body's natural production. Uh, also, the metabolism of it is different. Menopause hormone therapy is a therapy and it is designed to reduce the symptomology, especially when we're talking about vasomotor symptoms and mood disorders and bone mineral density issues, but don't reach for it because of body composition concerns. It totally makes sense. Um, last thing I want to ask you is about supplementation. Obviously, supplements are a big thing now. I take supplements. I'm a proponent of supplements, obviously, and situations where your nutrition and everything else is intact. And that's something to kind of enhance all that. What's your opinion on supplementation and what are some supplements that you might recommend for somebody who's in the first avatar we talked about and somebody in the second avatar that we talked about? Yeah. Uh, I also like supplements. Um, they have a time and a place. I don't like it when people rely solely on supplements instead of a whole food diet. Uh, there's a time and place for protein powders, of course, especially if we're trying to get it in in time crunch times. If we're looking at performance enhancement type ergogenic aids, then they're specific to what the task is at hand. If you want to use beta alanine because you need more uh, vasodilation for some high intensity work, sweet, but don't use it all the time. If we're looking at things we want to use all the time, then the top three for women would be creatine because that is something that most women should be having, especially if they tend not to eat meat, because we have 70 to 80% of the stores that men have, and our body uses a lot of it. And so that one gram that we produce a day is not enough for all the fast energetics. We need it for gut health, we need it for brain health, and then you can also look at it as also helps muscle performance. Um, the other one is vitamin D. Because uh, even if we are out in the sun, a lot of the times we're slip, slap, slop, you know, sunscreen, hat, trying to avoid getting sunburned. So our vitamin D levels are low and we need that for so many different functions in the body. Um, and then the last one that I tend to have people look at using would be a nootrophic. So looking at rhodiola or ashwagandha, because these two adaptogens really help mitigate um, the sympathetic drive really help mitigate stress. So for our younger avatar, I would recommend rhodiola rosea. And for our peri and postmenopausal women, I would say ashwagandha. 
And there you have it. Talking about specific supplementation that you can implement into your regime, whether you're the, you know, 30 year old avatar that we, we talked about, or this, this avatar that's in the peri uh, menopausal or a postmenopausal stage. So Stacy, I want to thank you so much for coming on your wealth of knowledge. We covered so much ground. Um, and I feel like people are going to want to connect with you. They're going to want to buy your book. They're going to want to watch your TED talk. Like where's the best place to do all that? Um, if you go to our website, drstacysims.com, D-R-S-T-A-C-Y-S-I-M-S, uh, it has a list of all of those things. Um, and you can sign up for our newsletter and we write topical blogs, in-depth blogs every two weeks. And yeah, and then if you're like, I don't want to go to a website, you can go to Instagram, Dr. Stacy Sims, or if you're still using Facebook, we're on Facebook and LinkedIn. So that's where you can keep up to date with everything that we're doing. Awesome. Well, I will be, I will be sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is a share a takeaway. We squeezed so much into this hour conversation and we covered so much ground. We talked about these two different female avatars that we spent a lot of time talking about. We, we dove into um, the differences between men and women physiologically. We talked about diet, nutrition. We talked about strength training. We talked about how to cut back your exercise routine. We talked about the dangers of, of fasting and fad diets. We covered so much. So what I, what I, so what I want you to do is to share your takeaway and tag Stacy and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.